Välkomna till Fritankes podd. Idag ska vi träffa en amerikansk professor och ja, nästan kultförklarad person, Douglas Hofstadter, som skrev boken Gödel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. Eller ett evigt gyllene band som den kom att heta på svenska när den kom ut. Jag tror det var 1981 den kom på svenska. 1979 kom boken ut i USA. Och är en fullständigt unik bok som jag tror har påverkat en hel generation av datavetare, filosofer, matematiker som inspirerades av den här boken. För mig var det en total upplevelse. Jag läste den som 17-åring och den förändrade mitt liv får man nog säga. Fick mig att välja utbildning på universitetet, datavetenskap och matematik och la grunden för mitt intresse för vad ska vi säga, matematisk filosofi och artificiell intelligens och sådana saker. Douglas Hofstadter, amerikansk professor, var mycket ung när han skrev den här boken. Den gav honom Pulitzerpriset, det amerikanska litteraturpriset. Och gav honom en, en stjärnstatus får man säga som en multibegåvad person som talar massor med språk, komponerar och spelar piano, föreläser om fysik, matematik, språk och filosofi. Välkomna att träffa Douglas Hofstadter. Douglas Hofstadter, welcome to Fritanke podcast. My great pleasure to be here. Let's start with the book, the big book, Gödel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. I read this when it was published 1979, around then, and it... Move the mic so that I can see you. Sorry. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it affected me a lot, and it infected my, my interests a lot at that time. But I'd like to hear from you, how did this book change your life? How did it change my life? Well, you know, I was a graduate student in physics when I started writing it. I was about 27 years old, and I was kind of lost. Uh, in what uh, sense? Well, in the sense that uh, I had had a dream of becoming a particle physicist because I thought that particle physics was the uh, the main core of physics, that it was the most important thing. It was really studying the essence of what things are, and, and to me that was the crux of everything. So I, I wanted to do that, but after uh, several years of being in graduate school and fighting against particle physics, which I had not expected would, I would have to do, I realized that I didn't, and I didn't actually... I, I didn't believe in the things I was being taught, or if I believed in them, I found them very ugly. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was an extraordinarily traumatic period for me in my life, and I had to, it, it, it cast into doubt my own intelligence or the intelligence of particle physicists. Was, what do you mean when you say you didn't believe in what you were taught? Well, I believed in the things that were, uh, you know, classical results. I believed in thermodynamics and electricity and magnetism, mechanics, and the, the standard courses I thought mm. were extraordinarily beautiful. Mm. And, and that's, that thing of beauty was so, so central. Everything in physics seemed to me to be quintessentially beautiful. Mm. 
But in particle physics, everything seemed ugly. And okay. the ugliness was so striking to me that I couldn't believe that this was true. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe that this was true. It, it, it was too ugly and arbitrary, filled with random, incomprehensible things that made no sense. Like quantum physics? No, 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 no. 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 I mean okay. the things... Quantum mechanics was very mysterious, but mm. not ugly. Okay. Not at all ugly. Quantum mechanics was beautiful. But particle physics was filled with strange, bizarre families of particles that made no sense, that had properties that were very strange and... and, I, I couldn't relate to the, the arbitrary masses that the particles had, the arbitrary... Everything seemed arbitrary. It just mm-hmm. seemed filled with arbitrary numbers, arbitrary uh, coefficients, arbitrary things that... They just made no sense mm-hmm. to me. Um, and it, it felt so disturbing that I, I really got nauseated when I thought about these things. And, and it also made me feel extremely inferior and stupid. And uh, so one day in 1972, in May, I believe, I was browsing around in the bookstore of the University of Oregon, where I was a graduate student. And I, uh, in the mathematics section, because I had been a mathematics student earlier, before being a physics student, and mathematics was a great love of mine. And I would always go to the mathematics section in the bookstore, and many other sections too, but that was probably the one I went to first. And I saw a book called A Profile of Mathematical Logic sitting there uh, in, that I'd never seen before by a person I'd never heard of named Howard DeLong. And when I picked it up and started looking at it, I started getting very excited because it was reviving all of my old interests that I had had roughly 10 years or more, actually 10 or 12 years earlier, in, in logic and in particular in Gödel's theorem. And um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And I, I bought the book immediately and, and I started reading it with great excitement. And... Um, it provided me with a kind of intellectual relief because I had been so concentrated on particle physics, which I found so ugly for several years, and I was and feeling lost and inferior and stupid and hopeless and not knowing what I could do. And all of a sudden I found something that really enthralled me and drew me in where I had a sense of beauty, a sense of excitement, a sense of mystery, and it connected with many ideas that I'd had also as a teenager about the mind uh, and consciousness and I and self and soul and thinking and intelligence and creativity. All of these things were very central interests of mine as a teenager Mm. and then kind of had gotten pushed to the side when I went into math graduate school and and uh, and 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 then when I went into physics graduate school, they really got suppressed, and they were deep buried in my you know not not near the surface of my brain or my mind. And so this book reawakened fascinations that had been sitting there for years, 
latent, dormant. That was, uh, and you know, I write it. It's I've written about the trip I took across the country that summer, in which I had my car and all my belongings, and and I, I got stuck in 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 Moscow, Idaho, where the University of Idaho is, and I went to there because my car had a problem. I had to stay for a couple of nights, mm -hmm. and I still remember the mechanic who fixed it. Nice man. Seventy <laughs> two. This was seventy two. How old were you? Twenty seven. <clears throat> 27. And I um, and I uh, I went to the because I love universities. I went to the university library. I went to the university first, and then to the library. And I because Howard DeLong in his book he has this amazingly beautifully annotated bibliography. He says this article is great. This article is okay. And he writes about every article. He doesn't just cite things. He describes them. Mm. So I imitated that in my book. I mm. did that too. Mm. But but uh, I went and got several of the articles that he cited, and I uh, I got them photocopied. And then I was driving, and then I got back onto the road, and I was camping at night. And every time I would take my flashlight into the tent, and I would start reading the articles about Gödel, by, about Gödel's theorem, and or about uh, DeLong's book, you know. And I, I, I was on fire. And you were excitement. alone on this trip. I was alone, and I was, uh, I was very lonely, but I was very excited. And I finally, when I reached, I, I swerved up into Canada. I was going, actually, I was leaving the University of Oregon because I was so desperate to find a new home. I felt I couldn't do anything at the University of Oregon. I had failed totally in particle physics. And I, maybe some other university, I'll find a kindred spirit, somebody else, some other physicist in some university. So I, I decided I was going to drive across the country, kind of weaving back and forth here and there, going to various universities that I thought might be promising, like the University of Colorado, University of Wisconsin, the University of Illinois, University of Michigan, uh, and so forth. And I don't I remember if I made it to all of them, but I certainly know that I made it to several of them. Also Carnegie Mellon in, in Pittsburgh, But I had no idea at that time I would ever get that far. Anyway, I, when I hit the University of Colorado in Boulder, um, I was staying with a very close friend of mine, one of the Jones brothers who I've mentioned mm. earlier, Steve Jones. And I started writing some notes. Actually, I wrote a letter to one of my best friends, Robert Berninger. I went to the library at the University of Colorado, and I sat at a table for several hours, and I wrote about my ideas not thinking I was writing a book at all. Just a letter to tell my friend Robert about these ideas that I was having all about Gödel's theorem and the mind and computers and thinking and blah, blah, blah. And it was 32 pages long by the time I finished. And I thought... Oh, you have a copy of it still? I do. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 um, by the time I finished this letter, I thought, well, I guess I've said about half of what I have to say. <laughs> Half of what I have to say. <laughs> and your book, I have yeah. to say, for those who doesn't know, it's uh, uh, it's uh, 700 pages plus. No, it's more actually. It's 777, seven, I that's think. That's right. If you include the index, that's yeah. right. Yes, yeah, 777, yes. something like that. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a long book. It wasn't twice 32. It was it was no. much more than that. Yeah. <laughs> But I didn't know that at the time. No, of course. And. Um, So I thought, I will just one more letter to Robert and I will have said everything I want to say. Hadn't occurred to me to write a book. 
you know. But um, <clears throat> that summer, <clears throat> I guess, was the summer in which I suddenly realized I was going to write a book. And when I came back, oh, oh, and then I, I changed universities. I wound up going all the way to New York City, unexpected, completely unexpected. And I spent a semester at City College of New York, which was my dad's college, where he, he grew up in Manhattan. And he went to the City College. And, um, and uh, I, I, you know, I like to do things in my dad's footsteps. Yeah. I felt, you know... I, Because let's say that your father was uh, Robert Hofstadter who received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1961. Yes. So that's why you were into particle physics, I guess, inspired by your father. Inspired, inspired, uh, yeah, inspired and influenced. Yeah, yeah just, uh, just, I was surrounded by not only my dad and his books and his ideas, but all his graduate students and yeah. his colleagues. And the world of physics just seemed magical and mesmerizing to me when I was about, well, you know, from even when I was a little kid. Mm. When I was eight years old, I wanted to be a neutrino. <laughs> you know, I used to play oh, games um, with my friends uh, and we would run around the playground at recess at school and they would be a photon or a proton or an electron or something <laughs> and I would be a neutrino because to me the neutrino was the most magical part Why? of it. Why? Why a neutrino? It, because at that time it was believed to have no mass but at the same time it was it had spin a half it was not it was not light it was the only particle other than light the photon, that had no mass. Mm -hmm. And the photon we knew because it's light, but the neutrino we didn't know because it's invisible. Yeah. And, and so it was the most mysterious, no mass, invisible, went through things and had spin a half, whatever that meant. You know, it sounded more mysterious than spin one, which was a photon. Okay. Spin a half, what could that mean? <laughs> you know, and it uh. doesn't interact with anything. Uh, it, it was too crazy. Yeah. So okay. the neutrino was the great particle that I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, so I was really influenced. So I wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. So I went to City College and I was a graduate student. I, they accepted me just like that. Maybe because my dad was well known okay. to them. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, they took me in for and I stayed for a semester, only a semester. It didn't work out in New York either for various reasons, complicated reasons. Although uh, it was a very, very important part of my life, but it didn't work out. And so I found myself driving back across the country in my reliable car, <laughs> my 1956 Mercury called Q for Quicksilver, because <laughs> Quicksilver is the, old, is the old English name for Mercury, the element Mercury. Yeah. I don't know how you say it in Swedish, but it's probably something Quick like... Quicksilver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, and my mercury was colored, colored silver, and it was quick, and it was a mercury. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have it. I mm -hmm. still own my 1956 Mercury. Really? Yes. I Can you drive own. it? Oh, yes. Really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's a beautiful car. I'll That's show you pictures of it. Yeah, I'd love to see that. It's a beautiful car. Okay. It's really one of my great possessions. But it's not the main car you use. No. No, of I keep not. it very carefully yeah. protected in my garage, just yeah. like you keep your Einstein book in your box. <laughs> okay. But okay. you can bring it out and show it to people. Yeah. And like I do, I take people on drives yeah. in my Mercury Wonderful. from time to time. Yeah. 
But at that time, that was my main car, and I drove back across the country, and I wound up back in Eugene, Oregon, where I had been before. I came back, and I started again with a new advisor in particle physics, and another year went by, and it didn't work out again. <laughs> what am I saying? I guess what I'm trying to say, you asked me how Gödel Escherbach, or writing the book, influenced me. Well, once I got back to Eugene, 19... 73, the beginning of 1973, uh, soon I taught a course that I, I was only a student, but they allowed students to invent and teach courses if the course was approved of by a department. And I went to the math department and the philosophy department and asked them if they would approve a course called The Mystery of the Undecidable, mm. MU. Uh, ah, MU. Mystery of the Undecidable. Because that's in your book. That's right. Yeah. And it was all about Gödel's theorem mm. and the mind, but mostly Gödel's theorem. And some Turing, maybe? I'm, I, I don't honestly remember if I covered Turing. I suspect not, because I, it was hard enough to cover Gödel. Mm -hmm. But it was for people who didn't know anything mm. about these things. You know, It wasn't for specialists. It was for undergraduates. Mm. You know. And it was a marvelously exciting experience, really thrilling. And I made three friends in that course, um, two of whom I've kind of lost sight of. I remained friends with them for years. But, but the third one is one of my very closest friends of all, Scott Burrish in Berkeley. Wonderful friend. And uh, so that course was great, you know, that I taught that course. But my, my point is that it, it, it started me writing the book. And I started at that period writing dialogues because I had been very deeply influenced by the Lewis Carroll dialogue between the tortoise and Achilles. And I started writing dialogues, humorous dialogues between the tortoise and Achilles. And then I started getting playful and making the dialogues have musical forms, canons and fugues, and I started getting excited like nothing. It was the diametric opposite of my physics. Mm. The physics was despair and nausea. Mm. Hard and cold in some way. Impossible to understand and repellent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Horrible, disappointing, unbelievable, making me feel that if this is what physics is, I don't want to be in it. If this is the nature of the universe, I have no interest in it. And, and yet, these things I was writing about were thrilling me. But many people would say that Gödel is very hard to understand. Ah, okay, yeah, but I didn't feel that way. No. We're all cut from a different cloth. Yeah. We're all made differently. But what, what fascinated you so much with Gödel? Because of the self-reference, the idea that... See... Recursion. Here, here we, no, no, no self-reference. Here we come back to your question of me a while ago, before we started the podcast, uh, uh, about Bertrand Russell. In, you know, Russell felt that self-reference was an evil because of the famous paradox that yeah. he discovered, he felt it was an evil and should be banished from, yeah. the, from the earth. He tried to get it out of logic. He tried to... He with did type everything theory, he, right? With, yes, exactly, type yeah. theory. And he, and with his colleague, 
older person, Alfred North Whitehead, they wrote this book, or this three-volume set, Principia Mathematica, which uh, was trying to banish self-reference forever and to put mathematics yeah. on a stable footing. Well, to me that seemed like a, how to phrase it, he was running away from what is clearly one of the deepest and most fascinating things. He wanted to hide his head in the sand. He wanted to say self-reference doesn't exist or is bad, when in fact self-reference to me was what made, what makes life one of the main things that makes life fascinating and mysterious because basically I felt self-reference with that word self is exactly what makes each self makes us, makes human beings, makes consciousness, makes an I. Mm. And here, what Gödel did, in some many years after Principia Mathematica was published, he found that although Whitehead and Russell had done everything they could to banish self-reference, he found it coming in through the back door. It mm. came in because of, uh, because integers, which are this, what Principia Mathematica's Mathematica studies. I mean, it studies sets, but it's, integers come directly out of sets. And so <clears throat> integers, whole numbers, natural numbers, are uh, one of the central topics of Principia Mathematica. And, and they, integers uh, can code for other kinds of structures. And in particular, they can code for strings, for formulas, for strings of symbols. And he found that you could have statements about integers, which if you interpreted them in code, would be statements about the formulas themselves. And he found that self-reference not only came back, but was inevitable. It was unavoidable. And it, 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 it made what seemed like a flat world of number theory, just talking about integers, it folded around on itself in a magical way. It was not flat, it was curved, it was, it twisted back on itself, it made a loop, it talked about itself. N number theory talked about itself. And that mm. was completely crazy and um, very exciting to me and connected immediately with the ideas of what is a self. And, and it had come in a, you know, many people feel that the physical world is flat. I don't mean flat in the sense of uh, geometry, but I mean flat in, in a more metaphorical sense. They feel that, many people feel that computers could never be conscious mm. because they're just physical things. There is nothing spiritual uh, mm. in them. Whereas they think that in, in somehow in human beings, they don't quite know how, but there's something spiritual that is not physical. Some, now, the people who think this in the extreme are called dualists. They yeah. believe in some kind of entity or ethereal entity, some kind of magical thing that can not only coexist with matter, but that can even push matter around. Sort of the spirit can push the world, the law, the, the mm. physical objects, the particles around. This I thing can push the electrons around, can make my arms move. They think that, that somehow consciousness is a force that is inexplicable and has, is beyond physical, beyond physics. Um, 
and they think that the physical world by itself is flat, has no spirituality. Mm. And, um, and you don't agree? I don't agree whatsoever. And my point is that Gödel found that in this flat world of number theory, which only supposedly talks about integers, like how many prime numbers are there? Infinitely many. You know, how many twin primes are there? We don't know. Mm. Uh, but, you know, there are many questions yeah. one could ask about integers, Fermat's last theorem, but they all seem to be only about numbers and their properties. But Gödel showed that these questions about integers can actually be questions about derivability and provability and questions about themselves. In other words, you have this crazy thing coming in a system that looks flat. It actually isn't flat. It, it folds around and talks about itself, thinks about itself. It's uh, completely astonishing that in this flat system, something happens that is magical. Mm. And I felt... Metaphorically speaking. <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Yes, yes I'm yes. glad that the editor of Sons added, added that comment. Uh, so, um, but we, need, we all need magic in our lives. Mm. I mean, for you, Leo is magical. My son, yeah? Yes. Of course. I mean, we yeah. all have magic in yeah, our lives. We all, we all need it. Music. Yes, yeah. we all need it. So in a, in a certain sense of magic. Mm. Um, and so um, what, uh, what I'm saying is that Gödel showed that in what apparently, what seemed to be, I, I don't like the adjective flat, but I can't think right now of a better one, but what seemed to be a, a bland, boring, monotonous domain, unless you love numbers, which I do, mm. but you know, for the average person, number theory isn't a source of huge fascination. Mm. But they would say number theory is just this flat thing, questions about numbers, oh, who cares? And I would say that number theory can talk about itself. It can talk, it, 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 it creates an I out of nowhere. And it seemed to me that this discovery was, in a sense, the key to how in the physical world, which looks flat in the sense that computers look like all they're doing is electrons are moving around in, through transistors and things are happening. And one would say, there is no spirit there. There is no thinking there. There is no consciousness there. There is no meaning there. There is no free will there. There is no anything there. It's just these particles that are as unalive as the wind or as water in a stream or snow falling. It can be beautiful, but has nothing to do with snow doesn't feel anything. Water doesn't feel anything. Wind doesn't feel anything. But where does feeling come from? That's spiritual. Mm. And I felt, ah, in the physical world, what happens is something flips around, just as in Gödel's theorem. And when a thing can sufficiently deeply mirror itself in its own structure, that is, perceive itself sufficiently deeply, then uh, it, there is a, a kind of a magic that takes place. I, I would still say consciousness is an illusion, but it's a very necessary illusion. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's when a, a perceiving structure perceives itself, makes a model of itself, and explains its own behavior and relies on its, on its, it relies on its own understanding of itself, which is very inaccurate and crude. I don't understand myself. You don't understand yourself. Nobody understands us. Mm. But we make models of ourselves. This thing that we rely on in order to 
get around in the world and to, 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 to be in society, this, this thing we call I is, uh, is a purely a result of physical processes. And it is an illusion, but it's a necessary illusion because we need it in order to survive. Mm. And, um, and if we didn't believe in it, we wouldn't be what we are. And, uh, and so I felt that there was an incredibly deep link between Gödel's theorem and the mystery of consciousness, I, self, mm. soul, etc. And, and that was what launched me on writing this book and uh, in, in 1973 and four, I was so, so involved in it. It's kind of, I can tell you a funny story. I wrote the first draft of the book in pen. Well, I, I, was, okay. I was a graduate student and I wrote it mostly, as I recall. Not on a typewriter. Oh, no. In pen, mm. on paper. And you still have it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I wrote it in like two months. It was in the fall of 1973 when the famous October War took place between Israel and Egypt. Mm. Uh, some people call it the Yom Kippur War. Yeah. That's, but I call it the October War. And I remember I was reading at that time a, a, a book that I loved called, um, what was it called exactly? It was by uh, J.M. Yauch, a physicist at CERN, who had, whose daughter had been in my class when I was at, at the International School of Geneva, Eldry Yauch. And this physicist had written a book called, it was, its subtitle was Galilean Dialogues, but I can't remember the exact title of the book. But it was about um, quantum mechanics, and it was written on four days, four days of dialogues between Simplicio, Salviati, and Sagredo, the three characters from... Yeah. Galileo, and he wrote it in such a f Galilean style. Yeah. It sounded like these, but they were discussing the mysteries of quantum mechanics, and I was reading that book at oh. that time, and it, it fired me up to write dialogues again. Oh, I thought, wow, what a medium for a communication of ideas. It's so vivid. So that was terribly exciting to me because I loved quantum mechanics and I loved, I was falling in love with dialogues. And then that Lewis Carroll dialogue, all of a sudden it came together and I started writing these dialogues and then inserting these humorous wordplay and the humorous self-referential structures because I would have characters talk. It's, it's a very long story to explain all of this. But it's interesting. I, so 73, 73, I was doing this, and as I said, I wrote it out in, in a rush. The first, the first version of the book had zero dialogues, zero. But that was after only two months. It was finished, 200 handwritten pages. Um, and I thought, oh, all I need to do now is type it up. And I had a little typewriter, a little one that could sit on my lap, called a Hermes typewriter it was, made in Switzerland. And I got a whole bunch of paper, white, nice white paper, typing paper. I started taking my notes, and I would have it, you know, typing, and I would, but I would change it all the time. And I, soon enough, I realized I was writing a new, a new version of the book. I wasn't just typing it up. I was taking ideas here and there. But I, and I wrote up about 14 chapters. I think the original version had 10. 
This, this new version had 14 chapters, and I was doing that in 74. And, but at, at that same time, I had hit the total crisis in particle physics. I had a moment at which I had to abandon particle physics. Not exactly any longer with regret, but with disgust, a sense of triumph. Not triumph over particle physics, but triumph over my struggles. What did your father say about that? I think he's understood it. I think he was somewhat skeptical too. I, I mean, in other words, he was a particle physicist, but he was an experimentalist, and he didn't necessarily like all the ideas about mm. theorists were coming up with. I, I remember he was suspicious of many of them. And he felt in great doubt about many of the things that were being proposed at that time. And so I think he was sympathetic, although he certainly didn't, he, he himself didn't, you know, bow out of particle physics. Uh, but I think he was sympathetic. And uh, so I sought another advisor. I did something I never could have imagined doing, which was to go to a solid-state theorist, who my dad had known when they were young, in their 20s, at Princeton, when my dad was a graduate student, and Gregory Wanier, that was his name, he was a Swiss physicist, very, very, very good physicist. They were both at Princeton in the 1930s. Wanier had gotten his doctorate already, he was like a postdoc, my dad was a graduate student, but they knew each other. And Wanya now was on the faculty at the University of Oregon. My dad had told me when I first went to Oregon in 1968, several years earlier, that I should at least contact Wanya. And Wanya had always been friendly to me. When I, you know, as soon as I contacted him, he was glad to meet me. He invited me to his house for dinner. So we had a few years of occasional friendship, but nothing very close. I mean, he was just a professor. He was probably the most distinguished professor at the University of Oregon. But he wasn't in particle physics. He was in solid-state theory, which to me meant nothing. It seemed like it was just glorified engineering, and I thought it was uh, not anything that I could ever be interested in. And so in once I had thrown particle physics out of my life, I had invested at that point six years of my life in graduate school in physics. Mm. And what was I going to do? Mm. I had to do something, otherwise I would never get a PhD. I would never become a professor. I couldn't do anything. Mm. So I explored various things, and I talked to Wanye, and he gave me a problem, which, as it turns out, you know, became a, my PhD and, and a very, very central episode in my entire life. I couldn't have known that. But at the point he gave it to me, which was in early 1974, roughly February or March, I was deeply involved in, in, in uh, typing up the book, GEB. Well, it wasn't called GEB. Mm. It was not. It was called Gödel's Theorem in the Human Brain. That was what it was. Gödel's Theorem in the Human Brain. No, and. And the Human in Brain. In would have been good, too. <laughs> That would have been a good okay. title, too. But no, it was and. Gödel's Theorem and the Human Brain. Mm. I was so, that was occupying most of my waking life. Mm, mm. But all of a sudden, once I had this new advisor 
And this was sort of the make or break moment of my graduate school career, because if I didn't work, if this didn't work, I was washed up. I would have no physics degree. It was unclear that I would ever have any academic, uh, I would ever be a professor. It was unclear if I would ever achieve any of my life's goals. Mm -hmm. And so I was in this battle between my book, mm -hmm. which was so I was so passionate about, and the need to get a degree. Yeah. And I said to myself one day in about March or April, I don't remember, of 74, Doug, you've got to stop working on your book. You've got to put it aside. And I had all these pages. I had a typed up three or four hundred pages at that point in, note, in, in bound binders. And I, and I had an office at the university and I put those binders into a drawer. I'll always remember this metallic drawer, you know. And I wrote myself a... I, 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 I discovered this recently because I had forgotten it. But I wrote myself what I called a constitution... Um, for the sanity and uh, of the society, constitution of the society for the sanity and survival of D.H., myself. <laughs> okay. And this constitution was written very humorously, but it was dead serious. I was going to penalize myself if I ever opened that drawer. And I, had, I, penal I put monetary penalties, how much I would take out of my food budget. <laughs> meaning I would not be wonderful. able to eat if I ever violated my constitution. Okay. And believe it or not, these rules, I had many, many rules about what I had to do every day, things that I had to do in order to be a good citizen. Okay. To, for the sanity and survival of DH. And the, it was about a five-page constitution of rules. It was very funny. I, can, I have it on my computer. I can show it to you. <laughs> I'd love to see I was all handwritten. It was all handwritten, you know. Blue ink on green paper. I'll, I'll send it to you. It, it was funny. It was written with humor. But it was really serious. And, um, and this voice of conscience inside me took over and didn't allow me to do my book, although that had been my passion for at least... Well, many months uh, started, mm. you know, when I, it started with DeLong in 72, and this was 74. It was almost two years that I had been passionately involved in these things. And now I was saying, nope, can't do it. Put it away. Don't even think about it. And then, you know, what happened then is... Uh, and Gödel was still alive at this time. He was. He, yeah. was, he was still alive. And... Um, and uh, so I then worked like the devil on PhD. my PhD and I went mm -hmm. to Germany and you know what happened then was I discovered this structure which no one had ever suspected existed this uh, self-similar structure again self-reference comes into physics mm. I mean whoever would have guessed that nobody had ever seen anything like it here's a graph it's in chapter 5 of GEB. Here's a graph that consists of nothing but copies of itself. It's self-reference, you know, recursion or self-reference, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Around page 164 or something. I don't know <laughs> what page it is, but it's around 164, I think. 164. I'm guessing within a few pages of that. Okay. It's, it's G plot. 
I could be wrong in my memory. But I can find it quickly, Krista, if you give it to me. Okay. I'll find it. Um, yeah, probably a little bit later. Here it is. Oh. That's G plot. Let's see. Oh, yeah. It consists of copies. 42. Oh, I was way off on the page number. Okay. G plot, okay. A recursive graph showing energy bands for electrons in an idealized crystal in a magnetic field. Okay. So this was your discovery? This was my discovery in Regensburg in 1974. And your PhD? And my PhD. And okay. it became very famous. It became uh -huh. extremely famous years later. I mean, it wasn't famous originally. To me, what happened, what my feeling was, you know, when I discovered this graph, my, my, my advisor, you see, this graph, as it's shown in the book, is very crude. I'm sorry, it's very fine-grained. It's, it, was, it was the result of a vast amount of computation. But when I first was discovering, exploring this graph, um, I had a very slow computer, and it gave me numbers, which I then graphed by hand, because I didn't have a plotter. And, and, and it's so, it started appearing over a period of weeks or months, bit by bit, and I would draw in the lines that it was composed of. And after a few weeks of work of the computer that was calculating these things for me and myself plotting them, I started to see what the structure was, that it was a self-referential structure, mm. that it consisted of nothing but copies of itself nested down infinitely deeply over and over and over again without end. And this was a crazy thing, and nobody had ever heard of it. And I was seeing it, and I all of a sudden understood the nature of the spectrum that my advisor had asked me about, which had been a mystery for 40 years. No one in physics had ever figured out the nature of the spectrum. And all of a sudden, it was becoming clear as day to me. And, but when I showed my advisor my crude graphs, my early graphs, not the one in the book, but yeah. the very early graphs, he said, you're talking nonsense. This is nonsense. This is numerology. You can't get a PhD doing this. And he basically was so critical and caustic in his accusations of my confusion and non-scientificness that he, uh, well, it, 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 it caused a big rift between him and me for many, many months. And... Um, and, uh, but I knew deep down that I was right. I knew that eventually my ideas would prevail, but uh, how exactly that would happen, it wasn't clear. So this is a long story, which I won't tell right now, but, um, but my point is that this graph, uh, oh, I guess my point is that I did succeed eventually in convincing him a year later and uh, late in 1975, and I did get my PhD, but to me, G-plot, that graph, that magical graph that now is so famous and is called Hofstadter butterfly, um, that graph was not a pathway to fame or glory. That graph was a stepping stone, an, in, a necessary, mandatory step allowing me to get a PhD so that I could become a professor. It was like, thank God I 
found something so that I can actually get a PhD. Mm. Thank God that I have a PhD. Not thank God that I discovered something, you know, um, that'll become famous or do anything like that. Just, whew, mm. I have a PhD. Ah, mm. After eight years of struggle mm. in physics. And years. was it also so you could take up your book again? Yes, yes. exactly. Yes. I was liberated. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's I, what I, I got back to GEB. Well, became GEB after I took it back up. I started writing it again, a third time. I I had my chapters in my typed up books, my typed up manuscripts, but they I could see. I showed it to my dad. I showed it to a couple of other people, and people criticized certain things about it. My dad had several criticisms. He said, "Doug, you have too many exclamation points. You have." Too many underlined words. You have too many um, parenthetical remarks, and you don't have enough pictures. Okay. And you and you take and you're a little bit cocky. You take you you're, you're a little fresh and cocky and arrogant. Your tone is a little bit cocky, and that's not good. And you also take for granted a lot of knowledge that many of your readers won't have, like what fugues are, what canons are, mm. and things like that. You have to explain lots of things. My dad gave me all these good criticisms, mm-hmm. and um, and I uh, so I went back and I started again. I started wrote the book again, mm. a third time, but really from scratch. Mm. But this time I was at Stanford and I had access to a computer with com- word processing. It was uh-huh. so I moved from writing to typing to word processing, mm. and then I moved to typesetting. Uh-huh. I typeset the book myself uh-huh. as well. And word processing in those days, you didn't have a choice of fonts. No. You had one font on the screen. That was it. Mm. You had no, you, and you didn't have many punctuation marks. You, you didn't have, you couldn't write formulas. You couldn't write formulas in, on, on the screen. I mean, you, except very crudely. But I was at a place, Stanford, which had very advanced capabilities. And my friend Penti Kanerva, who was from Finland, had developed a typesetting a magnificent word processing system and then a typesetting system on top mm-hmm. of it that you could choose typefaces you could do anything you wanted typographically and that's what came into the book that's came into the because book because you've used i've seen all your other books you have the same kind yes, of yeah that's right yeah style that's right typesetting that's, style. yes that's right Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was extremely lucky. It may be that GEB was the first book ever typeset by its own author. Uh-huh. That's I think interesting. It, it may very well have been the case. I think it was. Uh, Penty typeset a book using his system. Mm-hmm. He and his wife, Diane, typeset a book um, using their system, but it wasn't by themselves. Mm-hmm. It was somebody. It was by some other people. Whereas my book, I was typesetting it by myself using Penty's system. And this was a magnificent uh, opportunity for me to to realize something that was beautiful in form and content. I mean, my book was my was content, but it was also form. Yeah. And uh, and and so I had this great opportunity and and I spent two more years at Stanford from 75 till 77, uh, late 75 till late 77 rewriting GEB from start to finish, teaching another course on it um, for Stanford students uh, called Recursion, Self-Reference, and Intelligence. Mm -hmm. 
curiously enough, I left out the idea of I and consciousness. I just mm. said intelligence. But anyway, and, and in that course, I met another lifelong friend, Scott Kim. And uh, that was another great thing. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, having my PhD in physics had given me the chance to, 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 to stay in the academic world, but I wasn't going to become a physicist. You know, it's a funny thing. At that time, I was invited to give a colloquium by a friend of mine in a physics department. And I went and I talked about G-plot. I showed the graph and I mm. told them about my thesis. And it was clear that the people were fascinated. And it was very obvious that I would, could have gotten a job in their department or probably in many physics departments instantly, thanks to the, G, the plot, yeah. the, the graph that I had discovered, because it was so intrinsically interesting and so unheard of, so magical. But I thought, no, I can't do this. I'm not cut out to be a physicist. Mm. It's, it's, it's a, I've been so lucky to find this graph. So lucky that Gregory Wanier was at the University of Oregon. So lucky that I already knew how to program so that I could do the numerical work because no physicists programmed it in those days. Mm -hmm. But I knew how to program. So I was a fish out of water. Uh, I, was do I was somebody who didn't do what normal physicists did. And no. I was so lucky. There were many, many, many strokes of luck that allowed me to find G-plot and nobody else had found it and to understand it. I must ask you, I want to proceed in the years when your book is published, but first I want to ask you one thing, because it's so fascinating. You describe that this first book about Gödel's theorem made you realize that mathematics was not flat, as you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Because I had a similar, I mean, I, I found Gödel, I think, through your book, and I was like 21 or something like that. And... Um, for me, it was um, the, 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 the realization that mathematical truth was not equivalent to mathematical proof. Absolutely. That was Absolutely. the big thing for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the sort of the feeling that truth is something else than just... More elusive. More elusive. Yeah. And it's some kind of pl Plato, I, I, I mean, that objective truth is something more than just a mechanical yes, calculation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, would you say that that, in a way, is the same thing as you talk about? But It's related, but it's not the same no. thing. But it does bring me back. What you're doing is you're reminding me, of, you asked about Russell. And didn't you? Yeah and, yeah. and I don't think I ever really quite said what it was about Russell that I didn't like. But what I, the point is, he he wanted to banish strange. He wanted to banish self-reference, which later I call strange loops. But he wanted to banish them, but he didn't succeed. But then he didn't ever understand what Gödel had done. Hmm. He never understood it. He never understood that self-reference was inevitable hmm. in the, any theory of the integers, and. Um, and, uh, and in that sense, he showed his own limitations. Okay. He showed that mm -hmm. he, he really didn't understand the nature of mathematics, although he had made, let's say, a very important contribution, which was to write Principia Mathematics, Mathematica, so that it could serve as something that allowed it to be transcended. Gödel showed that 
mathematics transcends what yeah what Whitehead and Russell or Russell exactly and transcends. That's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah, and so because that's exactly what what the the that, that's what Gödel did for me when I mm-hmm. read your book, mm-hmm. and I think there's another interesting similarity because you described that you found this book about Gödel. And you were at that time lost, uh, yes. as you describe it, and it made you rediscover your childhood interests in or a teenage teenage, teenage interests. Interest, yes. And you know, your book did the same thing for me because I was, you know, I wanted to be a musician at yeah. that time. And then, but as a kid, I was extremely into mathematics and computer programming when I was ten, eleven, and twelve. Yeah. And then, you know, as a teenager, I wanted to be a musician, and you know, blah blah. blah. And then I read your book, and I sort of rediscovered my teenage yeah. interest. Well, it's, it's the same inter- thing. It's very interesting how certain interests can become, let's say, dormant. They can go, they can go quiet in your yeah, brain and exactly. stay quiet and dormant for a, a while, and then something happens that reawakens. Reawakens. They, they flower. Sense. They bloom. Exactly. They come alive again, and that's what Howard DeLong's book. It wasn't did for me. It wasn't actually Gödel wasn't in the title. It was called a profile of mathematical logic. But of course, Gödel was front and center mm. in the book. But mm. many other people were too. People like Turing, as you said, yeah. and uh, and uh, and a number of other important figures uh, were were covered in that book. But Gödel was certainly, without any question, yeah. the most important. But okay, tell me, now you have typeset your book, and we are, what year? 76? This would, well, by the time the book was typeset, it was 78. 78. What happens then? Well, we have to go back a little bit, okay. because 75, uh, 77, excuse me, I, I had finished GEB, I hadn't typeset it, but I had finished writing it, and, and the title had changed because, thanks to my dad... I did include pictures. Mm. He said more. Yeah, it's quite a few pictures. pictures in it. Oh yeah, there are hundreds. Yeah, you know, at least a hundred. And that's why Escher came. Yeah, came Escher in. came in because I had all these pictures of Escher in my mind, but I wasn't showing them to my readers. Yeah, I was just being driven inside my head, and I thought, wow, I should use Escher pictures. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so I, th- and then the dialogues were taking on these crazy forms, and I thought mm-hmm. I should let the readers know that this is not a bland, boring, flat book mm. called Gödel's Theorem in the Human Brain. This isn't some boring academic mm. treatise for specialists. This is a book that is combining artisticness with serious scientific ideas. So if I put Gödel in the title and I put Escher and Bach in the title and I make people understand that there's something going on here that is more than just science, just, it's not just science, it's art is in here. You know, there's a magic going on. There's illustrations by Escher. There are dialogues that have the form of fugues and canons by Bach. This is a book that has artistic structure. This is not just a, a boring academic treatise. And, and so the, the title changed. I mean, that's a, another long story. But. <laughs> so um, I, I, I realized while writing GEB the third time, well, I knew already, I mean, once I quit physics, that I had to go into a field that would allow me to think about the nature of thinking and the self and such things. And it seemed to me at about that point in the mid-70s that that field was artificial intelligence. Mm. And so I went down to Stanford in seven, at the end of 75 after my PhD was done, and I 
I moved down and I, I got what I called a Hofstadter uh, fellowship, meaning my parents supported me <laughs> uh, for two years. And from the years 77 to 79, I lived in a little apartment and I worked at a place called the Institute for Mathematical Studies in the Social Sciences, where they had an active group doing work on artificial intelligence. But I didn't join their group. Mm -hmm. I just used their computational facilities to write GEB. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I taught my course, you know, that I mentioned recursion, self-reference, and intelligence. And I, and I was developing my ideas about, my own ideas about artificial intelligence, not working with other people, but just developing my own ideas. And I started at the end of a year or so applying to various uh, universities for jobs in a computer science department. And, you know, the long and the short of it is that I got a job at Indiana University in Bloomington, and uh, which was extremely warm to me. That, that department, that university, and that town were all extremely warm. And it made a huge difference to me to be welcomed in that manner. And it was, again, very exciting. You know, it was a bit sad to leave the West where I'd grown up and to go to the Midwest, which uh, I didn't think I belonged in the Midwest, but I didn't care. I mean, they were welcoming me. And my dad had a motto. My dad had a very important motto that has influenced me and many, many other people that I know who have heard me quote this motto, go where they love you. That's nice. Yeah. Go where they love you. And I, by the way, uh, that's why I'm here, because, uh, because you know, Sweden has been very kind to me. Um, uh, Gunilla Borifors in, in Uppsala has done wonderful things to welcome me to, to Uppsala many years ago. And you have done great things <laughs> to welcome me. So I go where I, go where I feel loved. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I did when I moved to Bloomington. I, uh, I moved to Bloomington in 77 and immediately started teaching artificial intelligence courses and courses on computation and mm. uh, the computability and, and also elementary programs. Did you teach uh, Lisp and Prolog and those languages? I taught Lisp, but I didn't... I didn't uh, my main interest was not the languages themselves, but the programs that you would write. I mean, I did teach Lisp at some points, yeah, but... Because I was very much into Lisp when yeah, I was a teenager. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating. It's a fascinating language, and mm. I and I a lot of recursion. Yes, and I enjoyed teaching it. I very much enjoyed teaching it. So, did you approach a publisher by this at this time? Oh yes, yes, I did, and uh, <laughs> it's a very amusing thing that I approached about ten public, twelve publishers, and and ones that I loved and admired. Some of them were university presses, like my own university, Indiana University. Um, maybe, I can't remember, maybe the University of Chicago, I can't remember. Definitely Cambridge and Oxford, um, and, uh, and some others, Princeton. And anyway, um, the one that eventually was most interested, and they um, expressed great interest, was Basic Books mm. and in New York. And there was a time in the late, it was late, um, seven, uh, sorry, early 78, when there was horrible, horrible weather during that, that winter, and my car was stuck in you know, one meter of snow and ice for months. I couldn't move. 
Finally, when the ice melted in March, I decided I wanted to take a trip over the spring vacation to New York. I don't remember exactly why. And I had sent my book out to a number of publishers, and I was driving through this extremely cold, snowy landscape of Pennsylvania, and I came to a freeway exit where into the small, small town of Clarion, Pennsylvania, where I needed maybe to get gas or maybe I was going to get something to eat. I don't know. I went into Calarion and I walked into a, you know, a restaurant and I found a phone booth in the very front of the restaurant in a little, you know, sort of a, I don't know what you would call it, but it doesn't matter, a little entrance, vestibule, we might say, right in front of the restaurant. It's kind of a chilly part. But I wanted to call Basic Books and find out if they had made a decision. And I called, and Martin Kessler, the publisher, who became a good friend, uh, told me, yes, we're going to publish your book. <laughs> and this, the funny thing is, this is what I call the clarion call. I don't know if you know the phrase. No. It's a term in English. I don't even know exactly what it means, but it means a clarion, maybe a, a, a trumpet of some sort. But a clarion call is a call to arms. It's a very important moment in, in a military situation. Uh -huh. okay. And um, I, you'd look it up and find yeah. out what it means. But clarion was the name of the town. And ah, this was this phone call. Okay. It was the clarion call. Basic books. Said, yes. Okay. And so, once again, little bits of magic. Yeah, one looks yeah. for magic. Yeah. One finds magic when one looks hard enough. So you were very happy, of course. Oh, yes. This was yes. a very big moment in my life. And this was in early 78. And then came this thing about typesetting the book myself. And Basic Books said, we're willing to go out on a limb and let you try that. Mm -hmm. They were, I, nobody, no author had ever done anything no, like course. that. How and old you, were you by now? At that time. This would make me 33. Uh, mm, 30 years old. And then the book is published 79. Correct, yeah. And, then, and what happens then? I mean, how is it received? What, how are the reviews? Very positive for the most part, but the very, among the very first review, reviews was the New York Times, which was very negative. Really? Mm -hmm. Very negative. Uh, put it down, just said it was a bunch of random associations, digressions, uh, no central point, you know, just a long-winded, meaningless nothing. Hot air. That must have been very tough for you. Oh, it was shocking. Yeah. It was horrible. But luckily, thereafter, there were many positive reviews and... Uh, especially in Scientific American, Martin Gardner. They understood it. Yeah, yeah, very well. But then you actually received the Pulitzer Prize for this book. Well, that was another piece of amazing luck, I would say. You know, the Pulitzer Prize every year, or at least then, was determined by a committee of three people. Mm -hmm. And one person just happened to have read the book or was reading the book when they were making the deliberations and found it very exciting. And this person convinced the other people to look at the book and to read it and to and, and, and convince them of its merits. So what and year did you get the prize? 70, uh, 80, 1980. So oh, it was wow. it was just this luck that this member of the, yeah. the, 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 the whatever it is, the committee or the jury, whatever they call it, was a fan of the book. And what did, what did the Pulitzer Prize do for the sales? 
oh, I'm sure it made the sales yeah. go up, but it was already getting so many good reviews that I don't know if it made a huge difference, no. but how can I know? No, it could not. The Pulitzer Prize also had a major effect on my life, which was um, that it made me valuable property mm. for my university. And my university, I mean, I don't like to sound cynical or something, but my university suddenly treated me very well. They had already treated me very well, though. Mm. That's why I went there, go where they love you. But they, let's put it this way, they loved me even more. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> so what year did you become a professor? Well, I was, you know, I was an assistant professor already in 77. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, do you mean a full professor? Yeah. I don't know, it would have been... I'm guessing, but I'm, I don't know if I think I might have been promoted to a full professor when the Pulitzer Prize came around. Yeah. If not, it was soon thereafter. But tell me, I mean, <clears throat> okay, so, so the book goes from bad reviews first and then a lot of good reviews and then the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. But then something happens, as I understand it, that it became almost a cult book. Yeah. I mean, yeah. very special for a lot of people. Yeah. How did you begin to realize that? And well, of course, was... I got all sorts of letters. Yeah. You know, handwritten, uh, not handwritten, like but from type. Me. Yeah, like from you. <laughs> but that came a little later, because yeah. your, yours was in 86. Yeah, that's but, right. But in the first few years, I got tons and tons of letters, and I was a pretty good correspondent. Uh, And there wasn't email, really. It was mostly just literally, yeah. you know, handwritten or typed or or done on the computer, but not not email. But um, yeah, I I I remember being kind of if the word, if I can use this word, I don't like it, but mobbed by people like, I gave some talks. I don't remember exactly why, but I remember giving a talk at some point at MIT, you know, and being mobbed by young students, mm -hmm. you know, MIT students, what I would call nerds, mm -hmm. you know, being mobbed by nerds. What do you mean by mobbed? It means a mob of students came around me, a crowd. A mob is a, a slang word for a crowd. Okay, but they were very positive to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. were fans. Yeah, a mob mm. is, it can be a negative thing. Yeah, okay. You know, but, but you it, mean but, it in a positive way. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you say you were mobbed, it could mean it was just a bunch of groupies. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. If you're a rock, rock person yeah. and you're a bunch of girls coming up to you, that's <laughs> being mobbed by groupies. Yeah, well, yeah, it, okay. was, it wasn't as... as strong as that but it was the same kind of phenomenon in a different way how did you feel about that uncomfortable i i mean i let me see if i can say this correctly i don't know if i can but i never sought fame i never sought glory wasn't in into trying to become a well-known person i wanted to set i set certain ideas out there. I wanted to make certain things clear. That was my goal. It wasn't to, you know, become famous. And here I was kind of becoming, well, you could say the rock star. Of, you know, I, I didn't feel very comfortable with that. Mm. I avoided, I mean, I took a lot of invitations to speak, but only if they really felt like they resonated with my ideas. There were a lot of crazy invitations that I got from all over the map, and I just said no. Mm. 
I started learning how to say no mm. in a very polite way, always polite. But you didn't have a family at this time? No. No, 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 no. no. I was very, very sad and lonely, actually. Wow. Very, very alone. Mm -hmm. Very sad. No, I didn't have a family. But but I mean you you never I guess you never expected that this book would be so widespread. Or did oh, you Oh no, as an author you expect you don't expect part of you thinks your book is going to be very well received. Mm. Part of you has to think that. Mm. Otherwise you wouldn't write your book. No. Part of you thinks that. Another part of you says, "Oh, I don't know how would I have any idea. I probably probably will fall yeah. be a failure." But you know, at least some yeah, part of me at least some part of me thought this will be this will be this book will be Will, will, will have a big effect. Mm. Some part of me thought, yeah. and I think it wasn't because only of the ideas in the book, because, but it was because I knew that I was breaking new ground completely with these dialogues. Yeah. That it was completely unlike Anything other else. books. Mm. And I knew that that had a chance of making the book exciting to a lot of people. Mm. I didn't know if it would succeed, no. but I knew that it was different and that it could could potentially turn a lot of people on. Do you have any idea how much it has sold in the world since Probably then? a couple of million copies, but yeah. I don't know exactly. You know, it's been translated now into many languages. Mm. And, uh, and I don't follow the numbers, but, uh, but I am very grateful for the fact that I get royalty payments every uh, six months and they help. Mm. my uh, financial... You still get that? I still, yeah. So it still sells? Oh, yeah. It still sells. It still... It, of all my books, it still sells the best. Yeah. And, and, it, and it gives me not nearly as much as my salary, but it gives me about a quarter of my salary. Maybe, maybe even a third of my salary. Mm. Not, you know, like it's a quarter of my income. Yeah. yeah. Something like That's that. That's wonderful. Per year. And that it's so uh, sort of timeless. It it's still that's what's a, still it's, relevant. That's what's interesting. Yeah, it's very very gratifying. So okay, so now you find yourself being sought after as a speaker and a little bit of a rock star, so to speak, well, in this yeah, field. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. still. So how how does your life change at this time? Do you you, you travel around to speak a lot and mm -hmm. well, you and know, the publisher wants you to write a new book, probably. That's what I would say if I was your maybe, publisher. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, well, you know, I had some dialogues that I had written that didn't get into GEB. Mm -hmm. And one of them was about exactly the questions of how does the brain work and what is the consciousness and, and so forth. And it was a, one of my earliest dialogues, but it was one I really liked. And, and then I came across this book by Dan Dennett called Brainstorms, and, yeah. and I could see there was a kindred spirit there. Yeah. And, and his, his, um, his, his science fiction story, Where Am I?, yeah. which is a philosophical fable, you might yeah. say, or a philosophical exploration, but it's a story. It's a, it's a, it's a science fiction yeah. story that explores very serious sci scientific... We're ideas. actually publishing a Swedish translation in Sans of that. Yes, I know, mm -hmm. I know. And that, that's, that made me think, here is a philosopher, a well-known philosopher, mm -hmm. a little older than me, but not too much older, who is a, um, a kindred spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote to, to Professor Dennett, and, and suggested that we might do a book together mm -hmm. of combining 
things like dialogues and science fiction stories and unconventional ways of talking about self and soul and intelligence and mind and free will, mm. all these things. Um, and when I met Dan the first time, uh, which was in California in the end of, uh, was it in the end of 1979, when GEB had not received a Pulitzer Prize, but it was getting known, he picked me up in his car, or I picked him up, or whatever it was. Anyway, we drove somewhere for lunch, and he said, you know, when I first heard about Gödel Escherbach, I thought this is some kind of California crazy book, you know, kind of hippie book. Hippie book, yeah. You know, he, that's what he thought it was. Uh, yeah. And he said, I looked at it and I realized it wasn't, but my first impression was very negative. Yeah. But Dan and I have become really lifelong friends. Yeah, We're very yeah. close friends. But it was interesting that his first reaction yeah. was, oh, my God, yeah. never, no, no. It was, it was very interesting. But anyway, he, he liked the idea of doing this. And then we pulled together the mind's eye, which was a pretty big success. Mm. It, 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 it received some extremely positive mm. uh, reviews mm -hmm. and wonderful commentary from a lot of people. And, and I think it had a pretty good effect. Yeah, I remember it. I read it after GEB as well. Yeah. And then what happened uh, roughly at that same time was that Scientific American approached me. And, you know, I had always revered Scientific American. We had it in our house, hmm. received it every month, especially mathematical games. My dad was the subscriber. You know, he, he really believed in Scientific American as a great journal, a great a great magazine, you know, conveying deep ideas to a vast number of people as clearly as possible with lots of pictures, mm. you know. But Mathematical Games was always my favorite, you know, Martin Gardner, and, 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 and it, it, it gave me so many, it, 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 my, ex, my horizons expanded so much through Martin Gardner's Mathematical Games column. And he was going to retire, and Scientific American offered me, thanks to Martin Gardner himself, because he suggested it. He said, I think Hofstadter is the right person to succeed me. Mm. And they offered me this idea of doing a column. Every month? Every month. Mm. And, and you did so, so for many years? Not many, but for two and a half years. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long story. That, again, it's a long story. If we had many hours to talk, we mm -hmm. go into it. It's a very complex story, again. But that, that, that became your book, Metamagical. Yes. That, and, and the title of the column in the, in the magazine, Metamagical Themas, as you may know, is a, an anagram of Martin Gardner's title. It means the same letters. M mathematical games, you rearrange them and you get metamagical themas. Ah, uh -huh. okay. That's how I came up uh -huh. with that. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how I came up with the title, Metamagical Theme, as I rearranged the letters in Mathematical Game. But then you also have a very strong interest in language. Yeah. And you've written books about language. Yes, and you yes. speak many languages. Well, you know, uh, I'm very cautious about the verb to speak a language. I feel that... Uh, everyone who speaks various languages is aware of the fact that they come not as integer chunks. It's not like my, you, you get a one or a zero. You get a fraction, mm. and it changes over time and with circumstances and so forth. So 
Um, whenever anyone asks me, how many languages do you speak? I always answer, I'm pi-lingual. And, uh, <laughs> okay, 3.14 languages. That's right, that's right. But uh, I happen to know that you were in Sweden in the 60s. For, I was. For yes. seven months. Well, six, six months six plus. Months. No, five plus one. Aha, uh -huh, five, five plus five one. Plus so you were in months. Sweden for six months. Yeah. In the 60s, in the which 60s. is 52 years ago. Yeah. And du lärde dig att förstå svenska. Det gjorde jag. Ja. Det gjorde jag. Det, det, det gjorde jag. Det gjorde jag. jag. Jag måste tänka lite grann. <laughs> hur, det gjorde jag. Hur är det möjligt för dig att förstå svenska och tala svenska lite grann efter på så kort tid att lära dig ja, det kan jag inte förklara jag vet inte, jag kan inte se in i mitt, uh, mitt hjärn jag vet inte jag, men det, det, det är mycket intressant för mig jag frågar mig hur är det möjligt jag, jag vet det inte men jag är mycket mycket glad att min, min svenska har uh, att jag har fortfarande mitt, min svenska i mitt, 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 mitt hjärn. Det, 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 det är, är fantastiskt. Det så, är det så att du har ett extraordinärt minne, tror du? Ja, det vet jag inte. Det, 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 det vore svårt att, att säga. Men jag, jag tror att jag, jag, jag är bra med, med ord i allmänhet. Mm. Bra. Jag har ett talent med, med, med ord i allmänhet. Jag vet inte varför. Det, det kommer ifrån mina gener, mina föräldrar. Och det kan jag inte. För, för vi, vi har ju talat om att din pappa var Nobelpristagare i fysik, men din mamma var språkforskare. Hon intresserade sig för språk. Hon, hon hade försökt att lära sig franska. Hon pratade ganska bra när vi, när vi bodde i, i Genève mm. i 1958-1959. Det var underbart för mig att bo i en, i en, en, en stad, en, ett land där man pratade ett annat språk. För, för mig, jag, jag, jag älskade det franska språket. Det var för mig... För det, det första uh, av uh, uh, språk som jag studerade och uh, jag, jag var 13-14 år gammal när vi uh, bodde i Genève. Det var underbart för mig. Jag gick till uh, École Internationale de Genève mm -hmm. och det var fantastiskt, ett, ett fantastiskt tillfälle. Och, 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 uh, alltså... Ja, min mor har influerat mig mycket, 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 men hon, hon, hon var mycket litterär och hon, hon älskade språk och ljud, ljud av språk mm -hmm. i allmänhet. Uh, arbetade hon med språk som yrke? Nej, hon, hon arbetade verk, verkligen inte. Hon hade inget yrke. Det mm. var i, i 50-talet. Du ja, vet, okay. det var fruar i, i hemmafruar. Ja. Hemmafru, hon var en hemmafru. Mm. Men uh, hon läste uh, många, många böcker. Och, och hon, uh, hon gjorde i New York Times. The, the crossword puzzle. Mm. Var, varje vecka ja. uh, gjorde, han, uh, gjorde hon, hon det där. Och det var intressant för mig. 
många många saker som hade med med ord som var som var som handlade det det handlade sig om om ord och det det var var mycket intressant för mig min far också intresserade sig för för språk men inte inte så mycket och han var mer naturligtvis mer matematisk min mor hade ett intresse för matematik men hon har aldrig verkligen studerat matematiken Men alltså jag tror att för väldigt många så är det fullständigt obegripligt att du talar som du gör nu eh, efter att ha varit i Sverige sex månader för 50 år sedan. <laughs> Okej, okay, jag vet inte vad jag ska säga. <laughs> Tack ska du ha för komplimang. <laughs> men, du, men du talar ju inte bara svenska, du talar italienska, franska. Ja, med, mina, med, med min son och min dotter. Vi, mm. spr- vi, vi pratar eh, alltid på italienska, på italienska i huset. Ja. Varför då? Ja, oh, ska vi uh, återvända till engelska? Okej, okay, okay, okay. let's do that. <laughs> Why do you speak Italian with your okay. kids? Because my wife Carol, who died in 1993 uh, when the children were very young, was of Italian extraction on her mother's uh-huh. side. And she fell in love with the Italian language and culture even though she didn't grow up speaking. But she fell in love with it when she went to college and she wanted nothing more than for her children to learn Italian and so we went to Italy on my first sabbatical year actually in imitation of my dad's sabbatical year in Geneva mm-hmm. in 58-59 I didn't say but 58-59 sabbatical so we went to Italy, just like my dad had taken me to Geneva, I took my children to Italy with the goal of making them bilingual. Mm. And they really did learn, but unfortunately, Carol died during Mm. that year. And when we came back to the United States, I felt it was my duty, not only for my children, but also for Carol, who had died, yes. to preserve their Italian, because that had been our central shared goal. Okay, I see. And so I switched over them. They, their English almost died while we were in Italy, because we they were speaking Italian with everybody, you know. I was the only person, because Carol died, so I was the only person left who spoke English with them, who spoke, let's say, their mother tongue with them, and Carol was their mother and I was speak I was their mother now too I was their father and their mother and I spoke preserving their mother tongue mm. while we were in Italy but just barely when we returned to the United States they had strong Italian accents and and they had trouble with English for a little while but as soon as we got back to the United States I flipped and I started speaking only Italian mm-hmm. with them and that was great because mm. for some reason that I'll never understand, my children did not object or complain, as so many children do when their parents want them to speak another language at home. They want to speak just the language that they're surrounded by. Mm. My children went along with it. Maybe they understood that it was in a homage to their mother. I don't know what they thought, but they were very small. 
Five and two when their mother died. Mm. Six and three when we went back to the United States in 1994. But we have ever since then spoken Italian together as fantastic, a family. Fantastic, fantastic. In so, honor of, of In Carol. honor of Carol. In That's honor beautiful. of Carol. But you also speak Russian and Chinese. And French most of all. French. French, most of all, because that was the first language, I, and I yeah. fell more in love with French than with any of. But you have language. translated Russian authors yeah. to English. Well, just just Pushkin, yeah. just Pushkin, well, and just Pushkin. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> just the hardest book to translate exactly. possible, the Eugene Onegin, which is a novel in verse. So translating verse to verse, yeah, that's uh, you know, mm. it's like Mount Everest. It's there, so you do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also some Chinese, because now you're married to a Chinese yes, lady. Yes, a foreign. yes. So you speak Chinese with her? Sometimes. I've studied Chinese terribly, terribly long and hard, but it's a terribly, terribly difficult language. Mm. And so, uh, you know, like I was saying about being bilingual, I mean, if you ask me what are the numbers associated with your languages, I, 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 I smile and I laugh because I can't really attach a number, a numerical value. Mm. But if I pretend to attach a number mm. to, to my languages, you know, I'll say English is one, I'll say French is 0.7 or 0.8, depending on the circumstances. Mm. My Italian is 0.65 or something, 0.7, maybe in one is really good, again, on the circumstances, if I'm living in Italy, yeah, you know, yeah, and, then if, and then my, my German at the peak is maybe 0.5, my Swedish at the peak is maybe 0.4, but I'm hoping to bring it up to 0.5 <laughs> by the time I leave Sweden in a couple of months. Yeah, and and then you go down. You know, uh, my chi my Chinese at its very best, at its very best, is maybe point three or three five. Okay. Even mm. though I've studied it for many many years. And Russian, you're Russian. Well, at its peak, it was maybe point three. Okay. But but, but now mean, it's about point one. Okay. I see. You know. But you know, we just heard you speak Swedish, and we have. I know people who has uh, come to Sweden and lived here for like a couple of years, and they speak like you speak Swedish. Uh, so well, uh, you know, you have to attribute this to love. I mean, I love languages. Mm, yeah, I, I love them. I love their sounds. I love their way, their grammar. I love their writing systems. I love their proverbs. I love their idiomatic phrases. I love their literature. Mm. I love their culture. Mm. I, I just, I, I love the wisdom that's embedded in the language through the, their culture. Mm. I, to me, it's all so deep. It's and I, hap I happen to know that you're translating a Swedish book to English right now. Yes. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> Very few people in the world know that fact. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can talk about that very briefly. Yeah, Krista gave me about a year and a half ago, knowing that I spoke some Swedish, he gave me a copy of his book, Upplysningen, mm. uh, i, i, the 21. århundradet. Yes. Or maybe it's för det 21. århundradet. I forgot if it's i or för. Oh, I don't remember myself. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you might like this book. It's not written in a very difficult Swedish. 
And uh, this was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And on the plane, probably flying back to the United States, I started reading it. And I thought, this is a really interesting book. And I, again, I love Swedish too. So here, what would happen if I decided to translate it? Because it would be a good service to the book, you know, to the ideas That's in for it. Sure. And yeah. it would be a good service to me, get me back in touch with this language that I think But is But I so have beautiful. to tell you that, that I didn't know that you spoke Swedish so well. So you were here uh, for dinner in my house and I gave you my book because I'm writing about your book, Gerda Lerschebach, in the, in the first That's chapter. That's true. Somewhere in there you, you have Ex a, a paragraph. Or yeah, two. I explain how much your book meant to me. And then you take my book, you take up my book and you start to read it out loud in Swedish. And I was very surprised, actually, I must say that, even if I knew that you had, you knew Swedish yeah. a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then when you came back to America, you wrote me an email saying, now I've read your book and I found a few errors in it. Did I say that? <laughs> yes, you did. Well, that's interesting. I, I didn't remember that. I, I, okay. and, and, then, and then you asked me if, if, if it was okay if you translated it. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I said yes. Yeah, that so was that's, very special. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very exciting thing. And that's what my time here in, in Sweden is, that's my official primary duty is to translate this book and to get mm. that whole thing done. And, um, and uh, you know, I really feel that the ideas in this book are very shared by me very deeply. And I think they're very important. They're very human values that we need as you say, in the 21st century, we need these values in order for humanity to survive. Mm, mm. And yeah, uh, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, the, I really think we have to sort of rediscover the enlightenment ideas and enlightenment values yeah. for the 21st century. Well, it's century. interesting. The English word, and maybe the Swedish word too, is ambiguous. When you say the enlightenment, you're referring to a period of history. Yeah. But when I say enlightenment, I don't think of the historical period. I okay, think of yeah. I think of the idea of becoming enlightened. Yeah, but becoming, I think I mean both things. Actually. Yeah, I know you probably do because the the, the enlightenment ideas of uh, religious freedom, tolerance, and reason—that's what I mean by that. That I I think that's something that is very subtle because the title, at least in in the English version. What I call it was, I, I, I think my title is A New Enlightenment for the 20th, 21st Century. Yeah. A new, or no, Towards a New Enlightenment. Yeah. I don't know, the title may change. Yeah. But okay. I think Towards a New Enlightenment. So then the question is, what does that word enlightenment mean? Does it just mean becoming m more aware of things? Or does it mean a reoccurrence of that historical period? Yeah. And we I have think, to think about the title. Yeah, <laughs> you have to you have to make a, a title that floats in between those two meanings so that people can hear it either way. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's... but tell me, we we're gonna uh, end soon uh, this pod. But let, tell me a little bit what how is your life today and what do you do besides translating my book. I mean, what do you do at your university? What what your other projects? Well, you know. That's a very complicated question. That's a very difficult question for me. I, um, I have many, many projects that I would like to complete. Uh, one of which is uh, a book, writing a book about 
the centrality of analogy in physics. It's mm. a very, very important project of mine. Um, fascinating, fascinating thing. And I have uh, uh, I've done artwork over the course of my life ever since I was a teenager, and I have had a few shows. I had a wonderful big show at Indiana University, uh, fantastic. Uh, opportunity to display my art for two months. It was up for two months, mm -hmm. and it was in a big gallery. It had 220 works. For, wow! Yeah, for, you must show me pictures I haven't seen. Yeah, it was astounding. It was it was an opportunity, and, and I uh, the smaller shows then took place in other places, but you know a show lasts and then it stops. I mean. And I want to make a book out of those things. Of course. And that's very important to me. It's, it's extremely important. And there are other things, too, that I want to write. I mean, I have so many articles that I've written just for, just for the consumption of my friends who I send emails to. And then, as I was telling you the other day, actually just yesterday, when we were in the Nobel Museum, um, a large part of my intellectual uh, creativity, or at least my intellectual energy, you might say, in the past couple of years has gone into writing loving memoirs of my dearest friends and, um, and, uh, and of course, I could write many memoirs. I, I would love to write a memoir of my parents. Mm. I would. I once wrote a great deal about Carol, but I never finished it. Um, my wife, who died, mm. and uh, I have written some other memoirs that are incomplete. But I have written three, at least three, very polished and finalized memoirs. Uh, one about our dog Oliver and our family. One about my friends, the Jones brothers, who. I grew up with and who were so creative and so uh, unconventional and amazing that they changed my life forever. Mm. Growing up with people like that, that's really luck, mm. great luck. I wrote a, a loving memoir of the Joneses. And, uh, and then my friend Irani, who was from Sri Lanka, then when I met her, it was Ceylon. It was, we met in 1958 when I was in Geneva. And she sort of represents a facet of myself that I can't explain very well, but it has to do with love of languages, love of the international world, the world of other countries, other cultures, the, internet, the idea of getting along with other people. She represents that. And we were friends for our whole lives. And she died a few years ago of cancer. And it was a terrible thing. And I wanted to just write up a few pages in memory mm. of her. But something happened. It just got a life of its own. And I wound up writing a long book. Well, maybe not compared with GEB, which is 777 pages, but 228 pages. Mm. And, um, and so memoirs have kind of come in and kidnapped me or hijacked mm. my brain. Now, you might, or somebody might say, Doug, why are you doing that when you have creative things to do, like uh, writing about, you know, this, that, or another thing? And I would say, well, I, you know, I'm a complex person, as so is everyone. Uh, you know, love for my friends is, 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 is the predominant thing in my life. Mm. Mm. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, 
Another thing I want to do is write a bunch of pieces of music. I've written a lot of small, very small. Yeah, because you play piano and compose piano music as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but the thing... Do you teach courses still? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I teach kind of random, unexpected courses. I taught a course on the nature of humor recently. I taught a course on the nature of sexist language and sexism. Uh, I've done that a couple of times. That's very interesting in these Me Too times right now. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've I've written many articles on sexism and uh, even a whole novel with a friend of mine, mm-hmm. Marilyn Stone, uh, which we never published. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a very fun, interesting novel about sexism. It takes place in a high school. And then... Um, I've taught courses on uh, translation, on writing structured verse. Uh, I've taught courses on analogy making in physics, uh, and analogy ma- other courses on analogy making in general. I mean, I've, it doesn't matter. I've, I've taught, cor- taught a course recently on Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. You know, Richard Feynman, mm. a scientist and human being. I mean, anything that I'm passionate about, I try to teach a course on. Because I know that my passion is, is, is a good thing. It'll convey, it'll, it'll make me be, come alive in front of the students. And I love to interact with small groups of students. I've taught courses on geometry, on group theory, on you know, all sorts of things. Mm. Um, but these days, unfortunately... All of the intellectual energy has been sapped from me. It's gone away. Uh, you might not be able to tell that from the way I'm talking now because you bring it out a little bit. But, but in general, I'm very down, and it's because of terror of the world political situation. I really think we're closer than we have ever been, ever in any historical situation, to the ending of humanity. Mm. And um, I'm trying to do something in my own small, tiny, 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 tiny way to maybe see if I can help catalyze something that will prevent the United States and North Korea from starting a war that could be the end of humanity. Because that's the threat you see. That's the threat I see. Well... A nuclear war, a biochemical war, mm. a bi- biological weapons, chemical weapons, hacking where you mm. bring down the entire electrical grid or you bring down the entire banking network. Uh, you destroy, you know, the, the hacking could destroy the United States or the electromagnetic pulse. I mean, there's so many ways that, you know, we can all kill each other. We can kill each other very, very efficiently today in a way that we, we couldn't a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, it's uh, and it's only getting worse, and it's it's terrifying to me. And so I find myself unable to think about anything that gives me you know real joy, such as music or analogy making or um, the self or physics or who knows what, whatever topic it is. I can work myself up in a lecture. I can have fun giving a lecture, and I can sort of forget the world situation if I give a lecture and if I'm pr- working on the lecture, you know, for the f- few days that lead up to it, mm. I can work very hard, plunge myself into it. But as soon as the lecture is over, I think, 
and all these buildings could come tumbling down in a split second, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, in a big city. It's just, I don't know. We live in very strange times. That's why we need a new enlightenment. I agree. I agree mm. completely. I mean, that's, that's what we need. And I, I fear that, I, I mean, how can we hope for that when we see such monsters as Trump <laughs> and Mike Pence and all the people that surround Trump, maybe not all of them, but almost all. I mean, I think there are some decent people still hanging in there. They may not be very good, but they're at least decent mm -hmm. people like Tillerson mm -hmm. and, and, you know, maybe Mattis. I don't know. You know, and, and when Roy Moore, the, the disgusting scum of the earth who was practically elected senator in, uh, in Alabama the other day and was just barely defeated, you know, the guy who had molested teenage girls, I mean, and Trump came out in support of him. Mm. I mean, it, how, what is going on in the United States when it just came out of Obama? Mm. I mean, what? on earth. You might say it's the pendulum swinging. You might say it's precisely because we had Obama that we, that the United States, some forces in the United States felt that the pendulum had gone too far and it had to go the other way. I don't know. I don't understand it. No. It's with things like that happening in my country, I am terrified. Yeah. And, and also North Korea. I mean, North Korea, of course, Kim is, is equally crazy in his own way. Yeah. I mean, and he's also supported by the, the, the religion that they make around him, the supreme leader, you know, the mm. person who deserves to be the leader because he's the son of the preceding supreme leader mm. and the grandson of the preceding supreme leader. And he can do magical things. He can change the weather. You know, he can do anything he wants. Mm. He's magical. Mm. And, it's and a religion. It's a religion. It's a religion. It's a, it's a fundamentalist religion. Yeah, a crazy crackpot religion. Um, very tragic, very tragic for all of North Korea. Yeah. For, now over to something completely uh, different. Before we end, I just got an idea. Would you like to try the grand piano while we're still recording? Well, you and, and play I'm, something of your. Let me. Let me think about it. Not maybe at this very moment. No, okay. The sure. reason I'll tell you is that. When I, I said to you yesterday when we were with Frank at the Nobel Museum, when maybe you weren't there because uh, you went away for you, a while. You said that you I said stopped playing. Frank. Yeah, I, we, we got a one, we were in Vienna for the preceding three months, uh, basically September, October, November, so that I could get my German from point three to <laughs> point five. Yes. And it did, it did. It was fantastic yeah. for my German. But, and, and also so that we could see our marvelous, marvelous friends in, in Vienna, incredible place. Again, go where they love you. So, um, and, and I love those people and they love me. It's an incredible crew. And in fact, you introduced me to one of them. To a common friend of ours yeah, now. Carl, Carl Sigmund. Carl Sigmund. Yeah, I became a me, yeah. wonderful friend. But I had friend. other friends in, in, mm. in Vienna, you know, and... He's a professor of mathematics. Yes, he's a professor Sigmund. of mathematics and the author of a wonderful book on the Vienna Circle yeah. and many other books, including a, a, pic, a, a photograph biography of, of Gödel. Yeah. And many other things. He's a fantastic, a game theorist of high, very high, you know, top rank. Anyway, um, uh, while we were going to be in Vienna, 
I was, you know, I had just been playing piano very, very much all year before we, mm. the sabbatical year. And so I thought, naturally, I'm going to be playing in Vienna. Maybe I'll even compose mm. pieces while I'm in Vienna, you know, which is something I really want to do. So we rented a keyboard, a very good keyboard, uh, 88 keys, you know, really nice, sounds excellent. It's just it's almost like a real piano. And I played for about the first week or so, and then something happened on the world scene had to do with the, the threats to... North Korea. You know, mm. Yeah, the, the North Korea launched a, an ICBM. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all I could think about was um, New York being flattened in one second, mm. or San Francisco, or Silicon Valley, or where, Chicago, or wherever. And... And then, of course, Tokyo and Seoul and Pyongyang and all of these places, innocent people, millions and millions and millions of completely innocent people being flattened and destroyed and incinerated and carbonized. And I, I couldn't possibly play the piano. Mm. I could not possibly do so. Mm. And I so I, I haven't practiced. Mm. I haven't done a thing for four months now. Mm. And I mean, yeah, I could sit down and sight read something, but it would be kind of, it would make me feel a little bit ashamed. I understand. And, uh, you know, um, maybe I'll do it later. You know, sure, you sure, want. sure. But I, I, I think that it's just a way of talking about how profoundly and I think this is thanks to my parents, maybe, I don't know, or maybe it's just my own personality, I don't know what it is, but my parents were highly, highly political. Mm. When I, my, some of my earliest memories are of their political feelings, you know, about the Korean War mm. in 1950, about Adlai Stevenson versus Dwight Eisenhower mm. in 1952 and 1956, about John Kennedy versus Nixon mm. in, in, uh, in, in 1960, about the civil rights movement in the mid-60s, and so forth and so on. Robert Kennedy in 1968, Martin Luther King, all of these people who meant so much to me, and you know the three ones that I just mentioned, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, all assassinated. Tragedies of the greatest order of magnitude. And I, even though I don't, claim to understand politics well, I have deep feelings about it. Very, very deep feelings about it. And I, the world situation, I can't ignore it. Some people can compartmentalize it. They can say, yeah, I'm worried a bit, but I can certainly still go on doing my professional activities, mm. no problem. It doesn't, I don't even think about it. Well, I can kind of understand that mentality because, as I say, I can get into it momentarily when giving a lecture or when preparing a lecture, mm. but most of the time I'm mm. unable to escape the fear. Mm. I'm just unable to escape it. Mm. It dominates. And so I don't know if I'm going to be able to write any of these books that mm. I would like to write. Let's hope the world changes for the better. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Douglas Hofstadter, for talking to me. Yeah, thanks, Gary Hall. Thanks, Gary Hall.